So your past, that, that reminds me of our past, right? In a lot of ways, is that we are there moving forward. We're ready to, to get beyond whatever is behind us, whatever that struggle is, whatever that hardship is. And sometimes it feels like we have this bungee cord on us, right? And we're just starting to get some freedom. We're moving, and then we slow down as the bungee starts to pull. And then sometimes one of two things happens. Is one, we get pulled back to that event, that person, that place that we're trying to get away from because that bungee cord pulls us back. Or we get that snap in the back, like you just saw there from, I think he said dad at the end there. Um, so even more so, like that snap in the back is when there's freedom or release, sometimes it's painful when we get to that point where we are free from the past. We are free from that thing. And it sits in there. You're just like, ah, but then you stand up and you're like, ah, there's light ahead. There is freedom in that. Now, the past, your past, my past is extremely powerful. We are shaped by it, molded by it, even now in ways that we may not realize it. We may feel like, nope, everything is behind me. Everything is good. I'm just cruising forward. And then someone says something, you see something, you hear something, a memory comes in your mind, and it's like that bungee cord's attached again. Our past is powerful, and our past impacts our present in ways far greater than we can possibly imagine. We are complex beings. It's not just simply just fix this, fix this, and fix this, and then everything is good is we are layered spiritual beings, relational beings, emotional beings, physical beings. There's so many different elements, emotional, is that we are layered, complex human beings. And what Jesus calls us to is he calls us to himself. He calls us to a way of discipleship, of being a disciple and making disciples. He calls us to a place where we are to put aside any sort of sinful habits, patterns, things in the past that we have, things in the present now to be more like him and put on a new way of life. Scripture talks about the old is gone, the new has come. Sometimes this is more here in our head than anything around us. We try to move forward in new ways, but we get pulled back to the past so often. This is our fourth week in our series, Healthy. And in the last number of weeks, we've started to, to enter into areas in our life that may be unhealthy. Early on in the series, I said, just go where that hurt is, where that pain is, where that emotional process is, because Jesus is there receiving, welcoming, healing you in that instead of running away from it like we so often do. Now, this series, really the backbone, the inspiration, comes from a book that I read a while back. It's an older book. It's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality by Peter Scazzaro. And as I read this book, it just hit me in so many different places in so many different ways. And this has really helped frame our series and will continue to do so as an inspiration. Now, the message today is probably the closest to one of the chapters in the book that we're going to get. And it's also inspired by someone else named John Mark Comer, who had some comments about this topic. But what we're going to talk about is we want to talk about moving forward, but recognizing there's power in the past and there's power that needs to be broken. And so I mentioned the book, I mentioned the names to give credit where credit's due. But today, they'll allow God's spirit to work through what we're going to talk about. So I invite you just for a moment, just to breathe, just to release anything that is on your mind or attentions that you have or unresolved conflict, just, just to rest in this moment. And then I'll lead us in prayer.
Jesus, I'm so thankful that we can gather in this place. Lord, no matter where we have been this past week or where our life has has been and has led us to this point, God, thanks for bringing us here today. Whatever we need to take in, process, wrestle with, chew on, um, question, God, may we do that today. And God, as we go from this place, I pray that, uh, Lord, you just minister to us so you'd work in us and in the relationships around us too. We're so thankful for the opportunity to gather. And we pray this all in Jesus' strong and powerful name. Amen. If you have a Bible with you or a device, uh, you turn to Genesis 12. If not, the, everything's going to be on the screen, so you're welcome to look there as well. Last week, I mentioned how God is a sovereign God, meaning that he knows all things, he's in control of all things, and he put you into a particular family in a particular time, in a particular place, and you may not like that or you may love that, but regardless, God is sovereign and he puts you there, and he's allowed you to grow in these environments, and he knows what you went through and walked through. And our family of origin has great significance and impact on who we are today. We've been given gifts and opportunities and blessings because of our family of origin. But we've also been given some unhealthy patterns. We've been given some unbiblical patterns of ways to live or uh, resolve things. No matter how perfect you may think your family is and your childhood is, there's opportunities for you to look at these realities. Now, family, often what we talk about is We think of our parents and we think of our siblings, and that's what we call family. But really, what the Bible defines as family is generations. As we'll see in just a short while, when you talk about family, you talk about three to four generations back. So if we're to define our family, not just as our nuclear family, our immediate family, but rather in a biblical way, we're looking at individuals that go back into the 1800s. These individuals that you never met, you may know their name, you may know a little bit of their story, but they have impacted who you are today because there's generational impact, there's generational movement in these individuals. And so when we look at our family, we want to look a little bit larger than just at who's right around us right now. And we're going to do this in the same way in Scripture. So in Genesis chapter 12, we're going to begin there, and we're going to jump through a number of passages in Genesis, framing in, looking at generational impact before we get to some simple ways that we can begin to address, not easy, simple ways that we can begin to address, um, because they're going to be challenging. And so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 12. It says this in verse 1. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, and the Lord, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went too. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. So here we have Abram, the just the foundational figure in Scripture. This is where mission is set forth. This is where God's saying, hey, I want you to go from the place you're at and go. I'm going to bless you, and there's also going to be curses that are going to be involved, depending on how people receive the message. There's this promise that I am with you. So he ends up going to Egypt. And if we were to jump down to verse 11, he says something to his wife, Sarai, that's just so romantic, so romantic here. He says, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Hearts melt. There's music playing. There's hearts floating around him. 
And then we find out, in male fashion, the motivation here. Verse 12, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. So here he is. He's just saying, hey, listen, I'm going to die. You gotta, we got to lie. We're going to lie. You're, you're my sister. I know it's weird, but we're just going to say you're my sister. So Pharaoh takes her, Sarah, in. God comes and says, no, 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 Pharaoh, and causes all sorts of problems. Pharaoh finds out that it's really Abram's wife and sends her away. So I'm sure Abram learned from this lie, right? So let's, let's fast forward a little bit here. In chapter 20 of Genesis, we're going to skip ahead. Verse 1 of chapter 20. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And for a while he stayed there in Gerar. And there Abraham said to his wife Sarah, said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. So he lies again, you are my sister. And this is, there's, there's so much commentary on the treatment of women, but we're not, we're not going to go there today. So, so just the poor treatment. But we're going to see there's this generational theme of perpetual lying that's going on there. Okay, so let's just hope it gets better in the next generation, right? So we're going to go to the next generation here. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Let's see if he does any better. Genesis chapter 26. Verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine of Abraham's time. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. So think of this. Same king, same location, the son of Abraham goes. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I will be with you. I will bless you for to you and your descendants. I will give all these lands and will confirm the oath I swore to your father, Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands through your offspring. All nations on earth will be blessed because Abraham obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commands my decrees, my instructions. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. Notice the language here. It's the same blessing that is put to Abraham's son Isaac here. So this is good. This is the blessing, the promise. But, verse 7, when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Wonder where he got that from. Because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. Same king, same place, same promise, same blessing, repeated sin. Okay, next generation. They've got to do better. We've got two generations that have this perpetual lying. Third generation. Turn to Genesis 27. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. They do not get along. Isaac sees an opportunity to take the blessing away from Esau. Verse 18 of chapter 27. He, being Jacob, went to his father and said, My father, 
Yes, my son, he answered. Who is this? Who is it? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac asked his son, how did you find it so quickly, my son? Panic sets in. The Lord your God gave me success, he replied and lied. Then Isaac said to Jacob, come near so I can touch you, my son, to know whether or really, whether you really are my son Esau or not. Jacob went close to his father Isaac, who touched him and said, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him, for his hands were hairy like those of his brother Esau. Verse 24, are you really my son Esau, he asked. I am, he replied. Again, a lie. So we've got Abraham, we've got Isaac, now we've got Jacob. Fourth generation, we've got to do better somewhere, right? Fourth generation, Jacob, who takes the blessing, has 12 sons. One of them is named Joseph. Joseph is beloved by his father in Genesis 37. The brothers do not like Joseph, to put it lightly. They make up a plan of how they're going to just kill him. Instead, they decide to sell him off into slavery. And the brothers go back with this elaborate plan, this elaborate lie, giving this coat to their father, saying, examine it. Is this your son's? It's covered in blood. And in Genesis 37, verse 31. I can turn the page. They got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped it in the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this, examine it. Verse 33, he recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph surely has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All of his sons and daughters came to comfort him. They knew what happened, right? They're keeping this family secret, all 11 of them, plus, plus the others. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So as his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials and the captain's guard. So here we go. We have four generations of lying, just perpetual lying that goes on there. And then we can look at other generational sins of favoritism here, where Abraham favored Isaac over Ishmael, Isaac favored Esau over Jacob, Jacob favored Joseph first, and then he favored Benjamin. And then that creates all sorts of sibling rivalry between Ishmael and Isaac, and then Jacob and Esau and Jacob's sons and Joseph. These generational sins, they live on, they get passed on because they're modeled and they're carried through the family. If you flip over to Exodus 20, or we can read it on the screen here, God has something to say about this. When he's handing down the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, in verse 5, he says this, You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But verse six saying, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So for the longest time, I struggled with this passage. And maybe you have in the same way. Is that you look at this saying the parents sin, but three to four generations 
they're getting punished. I didn't like that because I was looking at this saying like, my grandpa made a choice and I'm being punished by God. My mom makes a choice and I'm being punished by God. How is this fair? But when we look at this word punish and we look at what is being said here by God, scholars have dug into this word, this word punish. And a scholar has said that it looks closer to the phrase of tends to be repeated than anything else. That the sins of the parents tend to be repeated in the children. So I want to be really clear on this, is that because grandma sinned, Jesus is not mad at you. But rather, you may repeat the sin of grandma because you witnessed it as part of that line, or maybe you are impacted by the consequences of grandma's choice. See, we can look into families, your family, my family, and see multiple generations of alcoholism, addiction, depression, suicide, divorce, teenage pregnancies, unstable marriages, mistrust in authority, unresolved conflict. And maybe that's not you, but you feel the consequences of the choice. This is what God is getting at. See, there's no doubt that our families, the choices that our parents have made and grandparents and aunts and uncles and those around us has impacted us and shaped us to be who we are today. But I want you to hear something very clearly. Is that in that passage, in Exodus 20, it talks about the sins of three to four generations. But if you put up verse six, please, of Exodus 20 there, it says this. It says, the heart of God is this, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who keep my commandments. God is a a just God, but he's a merciful God. Yep, there's gonna be impact by sinful choices that people make, and it's gonna impact your family. But God is saying, what what I wanna do even more than that is bless you to a thousand generations. See, in every family, it comes to this point where we get to a place and we look back at our family line and, and the histories of whatever it is in our family, And we say, am I going to repeat this or am I going to make a change? Yes, these things have happened. Am I going to follow in that or am I going to grab onto this promise of a thousand generations and pray for those generations ahead of me? This is the heart of of God. And I love what Louis Giglio, he, he says this. He says, the enemy wants to define you by your wounds, but Jesus wants to define you by his. See, some of you to this point have just been feeling down. You're just looking at all the negative, all the wounds, all the pains of your life. You're just going like, oh, and you're feeling that weight. That's what the enemy wants to do. The enemy wants you to feel that weight and look at your wounds and not focus on the wounds of Jesus on the cross. That's where our pain, that's where our past goes. That's where these generational realities go is to Jesus's wounds on the cross. That's why he went to the cross to give us new life, The old is gone. The new has come. There's this transformation that takes part. This is what discipleship is. It's putting aside these generational things in the past and saying, no, I'm a new creation. I'm a new being because of what Jesus has done in me and through me. 
putting off these things and putting on Jesus. See, we're all given messages from our families of origin about money and conflict and sex and grief and loss and anger and family relationships and cultures and success and emotion and parenting, gender roles, singleness, physical affection, God, church, other faiths. And often what we do is we just take it and we implant it. We take it from previous generations and implant it. Many times we just miss this opportunity to say, okay, God, I've, I've taken this message and I've lived it and I've believed it. And I thought this is who I am, but I hold it to your light, to your word, to Christ. And there's conflict in that message there. And so as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, we take the untruth, we take the lies that we believed about ourselves and others, and we hold it to Jesus and we allow Jesus to get rid of that or to change us. So what it means to walk as a disciple of Christ. We do not have to be the people in the past. We don't have to allow that to define us. But we need to be aware of the power that it holds. So how do we break that power? I want to give three, like I said, simple phrases, but they're challenging to walk in. First thing is name it. We've got to name the past. Not just suppress it, push it down, hide it away, don't think about it. Because what we've been talking about is entering into it and naming it. Name the person, name the place, name the event, name the pain. Got to name it. As it's been said, this is not from scripture, those who cannot learn from the past are doomed to repeat it. But this is what we're talking about, is that if we can't name it and learn from it, it's in us. It's affecting us. It's changing us. The past illuminates the present. And this isn't about just seeking pain for the point of pain. It's not about dishonoring family. It's not about um, betraying anyone. It's about being honest about how it's impacted you. See, we honor our parents, we honor our culture, we honor our history, but we obey God. And if there's anything getting in the way of obeying God, we need to work on that and focus on that. So who are those people? What are those events? What are those places? Can we name it? And think of patterns like when you think of your family history, what are some adjectives that you can put on next to grandpa or grandma or mom or dad? What are marriages like? What traumatic events are in your family history? What, what themes are in there? I uh, recently went back and did something called a, a, a genogram, and, and hopefully we'll offer this at some point here in the church. It's essentially what it is, is it's a family tree. And just intentionally walking through this, there's like master's programs on genograms, um, but you can also find them online in a very simple way, is that like just looking to see what are some trends, what are some events, what are some things in your history, and then how does that impact me as an individual? And something that I've carried in my own life is a level of anxiousness and worry. For my poor first daughter, I was the epitome of a helicopter parent. I've gotten much better. I'm healing, I'm growing. But worry and anxiousness. And so where does this come from? Like, where does it appear? And as I started to think back through our family history, I could look back and just like you, you find these traumatic events of, of how my aunt that I never met was killed by a drunk driver and how that impacted our family and how that went on and, and how when I was a child, my grandpa drowned 
and how I feel about water and my kids are around that. And so I started looking at some of these big events and then some other themes there going like, oh, that makes sense. So now when anxiousness comes or worry comes, I can be like, okay, I see it's rooted in this. But Jesus, you're the one that's going to bring that healing. I'm naming this anxiousness because I'm, 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 I'm afraid I'm going to lose one of my kids. Or I'm afraid I'm going to lose this friend. There's ways that we can name it. That's, sometimes that's just sitting in prayer. It's just like I've just challenged us in this stillness and this calm is to enter into quiet. And not to just push away these thoughts that come, but allow just your thoughts to process and to pray over things that come, that chaos that comes in our mind as we just are still. Just, God, what do you want me to hear? What do you want me to learn? Maybe you need someone around you to help you name it, whether that's a pastor or a counselor or a coach or a friend or a spouse, that you can just get it out. Your secrets have power. This family, history, whatever it may be, this past has power. Part of it is naming it. Second thing is owning it. You gotta own it. It's way too easy for me to blame, for you to blame mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, uncle whoever, aunt whoever. It's all their fault. Yep, they did things. You were impacted by them. You have been sinned against. There's no doubt. But what is your role See, my anxiousness and my worry, I can't blame on my aunt or my grandpa or anything else that happened in my life. My anxiousness and worry is for me to take to God. What am I doing to feed that anxiousness? And how am I not surrendering that to God? So I own it, I don't blame. And I think of a passage where Jesus said something like this. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. See, what I wanna do is blame everyone else. I don't want it to be about me because if it's about me, I, I need to do the work. If I blame everyone else, they need to do the work. They're the problem, right? You have no idea about that, right? We've never blamed anyone. You've never blamed anyone. It says, take up their cross and follow me. This is discipleship. This is where God meets us in our brokenness and gives us this new start. I encourage you later to look up Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 is there's a beautiful passage in the message about being just tired and burned out and how Jesus calls us to him. The third thing is we gotta share it. We gotta share it. You name it, that might be a challenge. You own it, that might be a challenge. Share it, some of you are like, I'm out. I'm not sharing that. No way. There's not a chance in the world, ever. There's power in what we keep. This is the opportunity we have to give it to one another, to share with one another. There's this really beautiful metaphor and literal reality at the same time in scripture of family. So you all have a bloodline. You have a family of origin that you were born into or you were adopted into. When you become part of a follower of Christ, you are born again, scripture talks about in this conversation with Nicodemus that Jesus had. You're born again into a new family. You're adopted into a new family. You have biological blood coursing through your veins of your parents, but the blood of Jesus has transformed you and you're under the blood of Jesus. You have been given a name, but when you are part of the family of God, you have a new name. 
as Christian, as follower, as child, as beloved. You may have brothers and sisters, but as part of the family of God, you have new brothers and sisters. There's a, a word that just was thinking about a lot recently is I heard it is that when we enter into the family of God when we're born again when we receive Christ is that we need to be reparented and I want you to go wrestle with this because I'm still wrestling with this but it's intriguing is that we're parented in this world in our family of origin we're parented throughout life And when we come to Christ, we enter into the family of God and there's a reparenting that happens. We give it words like discipleship and mentoring, but we need each other. We need voices speaking into our life and our brokenness and our pain. Or if we start veering off a path, someone to come alongside of us and say, hey, what's going on? Let me walk with you. To start getting messages that we should have heard early on. Now speaking this life into you. See, we've received all sorts of messages, but we need messages that come from the heart of God like this. It is good that you exist. I want you to hear these things. It is good that you exist. You are lovable. You are good enough. You are a joy. You have nothing left to prove. Your needs are a delight. You are allowed to make mistakes. That you are loved now, in this moment, more than you ever have been in the past by God. See, these messages, I'm positive you push back on some of them because you heard different messages. But this is this reparenting, this mentoring, this discipling element when we come around each other to say you have value and life and purpose and you are important. It's part of that, sharing it. But if we never share it, there's not that opportunity to be spoken into nor to speak into others. I think this has been maybe the biggest miss that we've had in this last year is that we have pushed away from community. And it's not just about you being impacted by that community. It's about you being able to minister and care for others in community. You are needed. You are important. People need to see your hellos or hey, how you doings? Or, or what's, what's, tell me what's really going on. We need each other. We need to share what's going on. And so as we wrap up, I want us to think one more time about Joseph. We look back at our history and we all have a family history. We all have power that holds us back like that bungee cord. Some of you are angry about that. You're bitter about that. You are very uncomfortable that I'm talking about this this morning. But if there's anyone that could be bitter or angry, I think it's Joseph. Not saying what you're feeling is not there, but but rather Joseph, you think about him, 17 years old, he is sold into slavery for the next 13 years of his life. He's serving as a slave. His language, his culture, his family, his, his level of comfort, his future has been taken away from him. Everything has been taken away from him. 
And he could have become extremely bitter. And he could have blamed, and I'm sure he had those days. But at some point, he resolved it. He named it, he owned it, and then he shared it. And I'm not just making this up, but rather I see the words that he spoke in Genesis 45. This is his heart as his brothers return. As he's standing before them, he says this. He says, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you, a remnant on earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. He had perspective on what happened to him. And then he said this a couple chapters later. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Walter Brueggemann put it this way. He said the evil plans of human folks do not defeat God's purpose. Instead, they unwittingly become ways in which God's plan is furthered. You have had hard situations in your life. Your family has had very difficult situations in your life. What the enemy meant for evil, God wants to use for good. What people chose and the pain that it caused does not defeat God's purpose. But rather, it is a stepping stone to what God wants to do in you and through you. 